information at operahousearts.org. This is WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. You're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming at WERU.org. We're a voice of many voices. We are volunteer-powered. And don't forget, we're listener-supported. Hint, hint. Got a couple of minutes to go before Maine Currents comes our way. It's 83 degrees outside our studios in Orland, Maine. Our transmitter is at the top of Blue Hill, but our studios are in Orland. Let's take a quick look at the weather here. This afternoon, partly sunny, a high of 81. Tonight, We've already broken that. It's 83 here. Tonight, heavy rains and patchy fog. It's a 30% chance of that um, from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. apparently. Some of the storms could produce gusty winds and heavy rains. Patchy fog after 8 p.m. otherwise cloudy with a few uh, low around 67. And south winds 11 to 14 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation is 60% tonight. New rainfall amounts between a tenth and a quarter of an inch, except higher amounts possible in the thunderstorms. Wednesday, 40% chance of rain, a chance of rain and thunderstorms before 8 a.m., then a chance of showers between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. Cloudy, then gradually becoming mostly sunny with a high near 79. Southwest winds around 10. Chance of precipitation is 40%. Wednesday night... We've got a looking at uh, mostly clear with a low around 54. West winds around 6 miles an hour becoming calm after midnight. And Thursday, sunny. It's going to be a beautiful day with high near 76. West winds 5 to 8 miles an hour. Let's take a quick look at the weekend because that's coming up too. The folk festival is coming our way. Friday night, mostly clear with a low of 52. Mostly sunny during the day, 74. Saturday, we've got a... Mostly sunny day with 71 degrees, and I can't go into Sunday because I don't have that information, but it looks like a wonderful time to be there, and if you can be there, if you can't be there, don't forget, we're live from Bangor from noon until 6.30 on Saturday and from noon until 6.30 or so on Sunday, giving you all the stuff from the railroad uh, stage. It's all yours there for the asking. Don't hesitate to come involved. Here comes Main Currents. It's 4 o'clock. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, August 22, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Marijuana is legal here in Maine, so there is no way your employer can hold it against you if you get high when you're not at work, right? Well, maybe not so fast. The courts have sided with employers who fired or failed to hire even card-carrying medical users. And companies with federal contracts follow the federal laws under which cannabis is still illegal. My guests today here on Maine Currents are Attorney Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier, both of whom have worked on legislation here in Maine, the legalization legislation. Lynn also works with the legal panel of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. They're here to talk to you about your rights now that state after state is passing some version of legalization, but the federal government still considers marijuana to be a Schedule One drug, right up there with heroin. 
Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier will also bring us up to date on what's been happening with the state's committee on marijuana legalization implementation, which we will abbreviate as the MLI because <laughs> it's just a long, long phrase. Um, on what they've been doing behind the scenes, they're the committee that's working to put the rules in place and work out the nitty gritty details of the legalization that was passed by voters last November. And right from the start, we're going to take your phone calls. If you have any questions or comments about this, what we have these two here in the room, we'll take your phone calls. The number is 469-0500. If you're local, John Greenman, our engineer, standing by, waiting to take your call and patch you through, and we'll interrupt the conversation at any point and uh, go to a phone call. Again, 469-0500 locally. If you have questions about your rights or the details of how implementation is happening here in Maine, you can also call toll-free at one 625-9378. So while I was researching this topic, I was surprised at how many cases there have been, including here in Maine. The first case was back in 2013 of people being fired or not getting offered a job, even in companies that don't have federal contracts or funding because of cannabis use on their own time. And this has happened here and in other places with people who had clear uh, medical issues, well-documented medical issues, and medical marijuana cards. I'm not even uh, recreational marijuana. So is this something that people are going to have to keep? And some people have also won. There have been court cases seem to be coming down in all different directions in different places. Is this something that anytime anybody smokes marijuana or uses any form of cannabis, they're going to have to worry that they may get embroiled in some kind of... Uh, legal lawsuit until the federal laws are changed? Well, um, I'll jump in briefly on that. Um, there are um, there are labor department regulations in Maine. Um, they proposed recently, maybe a month ago, um, to change those. They came to the MLI committee and the MLI punted it to the Labor Committee. So no changes were either recommended or made. Um, basically, there are regulations. I, I won't go through the sort of boring list of them as they currently exist, but the fact of the matter is that um, um, in order to have, with some a few exceptions, a random drug testing program, um, it needs to be um, validated by the state, and uh, you need to have 50 or more employees. So that's sort of the bottom line of it. Um, and then there are just a myriad of nuances. So any company who has 50 or more employees, if they get their uh, their plan in place, which a lot of there are, there's a lot online of different organizations that advise uh, employers about this, telling them that they should get a plan in place that, and telling them what kinds of pitfalls to avoid so they don't get sued or that they have a better defense if they do, uh, that are instructing people to go ahead and put these plans in place to start having a testing uh, plan so that if something happens or they want to test somebody, they can. So that's the the only criteria is that they have 50 or more employees and that they get their plan approved by the state. It follows the state's and there parameters. And there, there are other aspects of it. There are nuances. If you're a business with 20 or more employees, um, you can do certain things. 
the fact of the matter, though, is these are not um, these are these are vague at best. These plans. Um, employees don't know about them, and I would throw out there to anyone who's listening, if you are, um, you know, don't put yourself at risk for not getting a job if you don't feel comfortable with this, but I would suggest if a company um, demands a test, particularly if you're applying for a job, um, ask for their written policy so you could review that. Hmm. Paul, did you want to weigh in on that? I mean, I think it's just, you know, important for people to also, you know, be open and honest with their employers. You know, I know that right now, like, a big thing is trying to find employees. You know, I see, you know, help wanted signs you know, around a lot. And so it shouldn't – I hope with a lot of employers it isn't an issue, um, you know, or, or something that will deny, deny somebody for it just because of legal cannabis use outside of the workplace um, and uh, legal medical cannabis use outside the workplace. I think – for some employers, there's confusion where I think with medical cannabis where it comes down to accommodating the employee and um, <clears throat> the idea that as an employer, you're going to have to let somebody smoke cannabis on the clock as part of their medical um, need. And, you know, even sometimes I might be concerned about even using any cannabis on the clock. But that's something that, you know, anybody who is a, a medical patient should be sensitive to when they're, you know, considering applying for a job or the job that they currently have. And some of the advice that's going out to employers is saying that they don't have to accommodate that, that you, uh, a reasonable accommodation has to be made, but that's not necessarily considered a reasonable, it's probably not considered a reasonable accommodation. Uh, the first case here in Maine was in 2013. It was a, a young woman who had uh, been laid off, I think, at some and or gone out on maternity leave or some combination of the two. At any rate, she was she must have been laid off before well, she, she was she was working the for the the Adeco temp yeah, agency. Yeah, I wasn't going to necessarily give her personal information, but um, but she had gone through a process of rehire and had let them know that when she was going to be tested that she had used medical marijuana. That was you know 2013. That was legal, but recreational wasn't yet, and she wasn't rehired. And that went through the courts. Uh, Paul, we were talking about this right before we went on the air. I was trying to find the outcome of that, and there's some things written up, but nothing post-2013, so I was thinking maybe it was settled out of court or something. Do you, do either of you know anything about the the disposition from, of that? From my recollection, I believe the, the ACLU of Maine assisted with this case. Yeah, they did. Um, because it was you know a matter of a violation of the Maine medical marijuana statute. I believe the... Um, the defendant in the case successfully petitioned the state court to transfer it to federal court. And then when it was in federal court, the main statute didn't didn't stand because of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, yeah, I think Lynn would know a lot more about how the, the legal proceedings of that would operate. But that's, um, that's from my last recollection of dealing with this. Yeah, and that's often a technique to try to get things, um, particularly in the cannabis area. I see that through my normal work with attorneys all over the country, it's typically a technique to get things um, transferred from a possibly favorable state court to federal court, where the the law is much clearer because of the CSA. 
So that is something that could still happen, especially, yes. yeah. Again, uh, listeners, I just want to let you uh, remind you that you can call in at any point if you want to join this conversation or you have any questions about what your rights are now that recreational marijuana is legal in the state or if you're a medical marijuana patient or if you're using regardless of either of those things and you're wondering uh, what you're, you may or may not face if your employer decides to do drug testing um, or any other questions, we're going to move into in the uh, probably next 10, 15 minutes or so into what the MLI committee has been doing in terms of some of the rules implementing Maine's new law. The number is 469-0500. Again, 469-0500 if you're local or you can call toll-free 1-866-625-9378. Paul. So, it, you know, it's just when we're talking about the kind of the, the schizophrenic nature of all these different courts sometimes, you know, there was um, an article from a uh, August 16th, which is saying that a federal judge in Connecticut ruled that the Controlled Substances Act does not, does not, um, I guess, preempt, is that the correct, would that be the correct term, Lynn? preempt the, the Connecticut state statute of preventing discrimination of medical marijuana patients. That was a federal judge that ruled? Yeah, that was a, it was a federal judge out of Connecticut. So, you know, is, is Lynn, I mean, is this, is it, I mean, I guess, this is, is it with this something that the appeal courts would have to deal with if you have two different courts saying different things? Well, if there are two different federal courts saying different things, it would be the circuit courts of appeal. If a federal court says one thing and a state court says another thing, well, if a federal court, if, if a case was bumped from a state court to a federal court with no decision in the state court, then there's not technically a conflict there. It became a state court. Um, there, there was in, an interesting sort of series of decisions. It's a little different than this, but um, it shows the role of the federal court and the relationship of the state court um, between the states of Washington and Oregon and California and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal on the West Coast, where the issue was um, the um, the the Rohrabacher Amendment in Congress has basically said, in short, um, as long as a resident of those medical marijuana states is following state law, then they're okay. They shouldn't be prosecuted. And a bunch of people were arrested in those three states, and the cases were joined, and they got they got it transferred to they were found guilty in state court, but they had it transferred to federal court, and the Ninth Circuit said, um, "No, you got to look at. We need to know the facts of the case, and in fact, if these folks are obeying state law, then uh, they're not convicted." So it was kicked back to the three states to review that. I think it's one state, I think, dropped the cases. I think California is pursuing it, although maybe not now um, after, you know, this was last spring. But that's sort of an unusual relationship between the state courts and the federal courts that doesn't typically occur. There's a case uh, in May of this year in Rhode Island where a company was found to have violated their state's medical marijuana law by refusing to hire a card-carrying patient who uh, couldn't pass their drug test, and that's in Superior Court. However, the employer was challenging that one, too, as of the time this article was written uh, in the Washington Times. 
So something, I mean, I think something for, you know, a lot of the employers out there too, um, you know, someone who is an employer, I think it's really important to remember that you can you can still do drug screenings, but you can just ask for their to, for them to not screen for THC. So if you know if you have the conversation with your employees, or you think that it's not going to harm them, or you know it's not going to have an effect of their job performance, but you're concerned about opioids or um, you know any sort of other narcotics, you can test specifically for those. And so there's I think a lot more tools in employers' toolboxes than they realize sometimes. And at, as I mentioned at the top of the hour in the introduction. As far as the federal government goes, marijuana is still a Schedule One drug. You, things that are considered less dangerous or mediated because of their medical use include like OxyContin. Uh, well, also, I don't know about medical use, but meth, cocaine, those are Schedule Two drugs. Marijuana is up there with heroin as a Schedule One drug. What is being done to address that at the federal level? Lit. Well, at, 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 okay, at, at, I mean, at this point, I think um, with the new administration, some of the things have been delayed a little bit with, you know, a lot of the federal advocacy. I know that there are some federal politicians who I think have done some, you know, kind of some stunts to, uh, you know, say we should legalize marijuana, but it's probably just a PR move more than anything. I believe there's a um, a bill called the CARES Act, but that is troubling in its own right because it moves cannabis to being a Schedule II drug. And with a cannabis being a Schedule II drug, it would essentially open up the uh, possibility for a pharmaceutical monopoly on the production of cannabis for medical use. Right, because some of those things on Schedule 2 are are there because, uh, like Oxy, OxyContin and uh, including, um, I'm going to think, forget the name of it, the substitution drug, uh, naloxone and some of the other, Suboxone, yeah. those kinds of drugs I think are on that yeah, as well that are considered yeah. methadone, considered uh, for therapeutic reasons, but they're con- kept on Schedule 2 because they don't want people who aren't prescribed them to use them. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, we, we, we still have this reefer madness and we still have this this idea that, you know, cannabis is, is a moral issue as opposed to um, it being a personal choice or a, a, cho- like a freedom issue. Because there's people out there who think, oh, well, th- if this person uses marijuana, it's just drugs. This person's using drugs without looking at the fact of like how marijuana can actually provide um, less impairment than a lot of other pharmaceuticals. Um, it's a lot healthier um, when, you know, if you're consuming it in a, any sort of quantity than um, alcohol or other um, recreational drugs that may not be legal. And I think a lot of the times it can offer people, you know, an ability to have a safe way to relax without having to have some of the negative um, health effects that come from other substances that people use to relax, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, eating. And there are, the fact of the matter is, it's less expensive than pharmaceuticals. It's less inspect. And you expensive. can grow it yourself. You can grow it yourself, or even if you purchase it, it's not what you would typically be paying for your pharmaceuticals. There's an interesting case I'll throw out. Oral arguments in the Maine State Supreme Court will probably start in this winter, I'm told, where, and I've been following this um, since the beginning, it's a workers' comp case. And the issue is, can the insurance company be forced to pay for this gentleman's, um, uh, you know, he's eligible for workers' comp, that's clear. He was on pharmaceuticals to start with. He then went on to medical, marijuana. And the issue is, does his insurance company have to pay for that? Even uh, a a spokesperson said uh, for the workers' comp um, arena in Maine, said, I can't advocate for this, but it's a hell of a lot cheaper than when he was on break. Did you see that? Yes. 
And so there are um, there are a myriad of issues um, around this that um, that the federal resistance is ignoring, basically. And I think it's important to mention too. If you look at a lot of people who receive, um, you know, uh, main care or Medicaid um, or you know that anything like that, if those people are using cannabis, they're often not using a lot of the other pharmaceuticals that will be available through their insurance, through their state paid insurance. And so that's a way to save this state more money. I know that's been something that, um, you know, we've been trying to work with this administration and uh, their Department of Health and Human Services to, to look at it as a fact that if you have if you have people on main care who can use cannabis, especially cannabis they produce themselves at no charge to the state, the state is saving money. And then you're seeing people using it also as an exit drug when they're dealing with um, a lot of opiates, you know, whether it's, you know, through a pharmaceutical company or from the street as a way to um, deal with the symptoms of the addiction. Um, and so, that, you know, there's, there's a lot of possibilities for this plant that I think are just starting to be realized. Something that's um, wanted to bring up when we're talking about insurance is that Representative Benjamin Collins from Portland uh, put a bill through last session um, that unfortunately failed that was really looking to, to allow people to have medical cannabis paid for by their insurer to ensure that if somebody has insurance that covers a medication that deals with pain, for example, that they'd be able to get their medicine of choice cannabis and have the insurance provide for that. Um, unfortunately, we're not, we're not really there yet in the legislature, but it's, it was pretty bold that he even considered um, you know, inserting that in there. Hmm. I was just thinking Hobby Lobby came to mind as you were saying that, just thinking of the companies that... Uh, like Hobby Lobby that would take a what they consider to be a moral stance on not wanting to pay for something to be covered that they don't agree with, while at the same time they would be paying for Oxycontin or other things that have been proven to be more dangerous. Again, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. My guests here today are Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier. They both helped uh, work on legalizing marijuana here in Maine. Uh, both have been following the process as things, the rules are being made and implementation is taking place. If you have any questions about that or want to just weigh in on the topic with your opinion, give us a call. The number here is 469-0500. Again, 469-0500. Or you can call toll-free 866 6259378. This is a call in show right here at WERU today. We're live and we want to hear from you, so give us a call. So Normal has a whole page of different efforts that are that are underway at different um, places in the federal government. Uh, Lynn, you work with their legal panel. What are some of the things that seem to be promising in terms of of addressing the federal law? Well, normal has its um, lobbyists, a dirty word in a way, but everyone does, you know, down in Washington. And um, the, the things that they're working most on, in addition to trying to, all these years later, eliminate the federal prohibition. I mean, Keith Stroop, who was the founder of normal, I don't know, 30-something years ago, um, said at the beginning, and he's now general counsel for Normal, oh, this is only going to take a couple of years, guys. Well, no, not really. But um, they're working, of course, on um, the federal prohibition. They're working particularly closely with some lobbyists who are experienced lobbyists with the FDA to address... Um, to address issues around the FDA and the scheduling of the drug. As Paul said, we don't want it to become a Schedule II drug. We want it descheduled. 
Um, and so you have to be careful with that. Um, but they're doing that, and they're also supporting state efforts to pass um, more medical marijuana laws. They were instrumental in quite a number of states last time around, um, including Arkansas, which was a really hard sell, but um, they had a lot of people working down there. And, um, and then to support states that are tr- like Michigan that are working on the recreational it, part of it. And there, there's some legislation that's, um, if you go to the, I don't remember if it's normal.org or normal.com, I think it's Org. N-O, it's normal without the letter A, dot org, uh, and there's a whole section there that people can look at, and some where people are signing signatures to try to support legislation that would address it. A recent article, uh, this one is from the Chicago Tribune, um, dated August 4th of this year, Puff, puff, pass. The attorney general's pot fury not echoed by task force. And it says that a lot of people have heard about attorney general Jeff Sessions and his the, – I, the thought was that he would go after the states because the states have been doing like a hands-off approach in terms of enforcing federal law. Uh, the federal laws are still – messing up the dispensaries in a lot of ways, you know, in terms of banking and things they can and can't do. And some things are in limbo because the federal government ever decided to crack down. They could still apparently technically come in and shut things down and arrest people, um, even though they're doing what the state is determined to be legal. But this uh, subcommittee of a Justice Department subcommittee looked at recommendations for whether or not the feds should start intervening on the states and came back with a really lukewarm response, according to documents that the um, Associated Press was able to get a hold of. I haven't seen the the original document itself, but what their interpretation was is that maybe realizing that politically this would be a really bad idea right now, that both sides of the political spectrum would be opposed to the federal government intervening on the states, that maybe Jeff Sessions will not take further action. What do you think about that? Well, their recommendation to the Attorney General was that he leave things as they are. Um, The fact of the matter, the Attorney General, former Senator of Alabama, is a big state's rights guy. And so it puts him in a position of, oh, I'm a state's rights guy on, you know, gay marriage or all sorts of other social issues, but not on marijuana. And he he is in a difficult position with that. And often I find when elected officials are put in a difficult position, they do nothing. And so I'm predicting, maybe I'm Pollyanna, but I'm predicting that he does not crack down on this. Yeah. I, I think I think they're waiting for the budget. That's what I think the uh, the big you know the the big. Um, elephant in the room is right now is that the Senate approved the Rowenbacher Amendment that, um, as we said earlier, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said if you're abiding by your state's medical marijuana laws, you know, they can't use the preemption of the Controlled Substances Act to prosecute you. And I believe that was in state and federal court. Um, you know, so that was a really huge ruling. But if that if that amendment doesn't survive a committee of conference, because I'm sure there's going to be two different budgets from the House and the Senate, then I, I, I think that we could see more federal enforcement, but not necessarily federal enforcement against people who are really within the letter of the law here. You know, it's people who are, who are you know, 
in a lot of ways pioneers, but are pushing it in different ways and different limits. And anyone who's violating the state law, I think, could face um, you know inter- federal interaction. So, but by pioneers, do you mean people who are actually trying to grow it on their own instead of becoming like a registered dispensary? Those people are more at risk. I mean, I, I, I I'm speaking more about the uh, the people who are operating storefronts right now without a clear you know a clear signal from the state of whether that is allowed or prohibited and that's that's i guess from what i've done what from what i've read and what i've researched is that's where i think the federal government comes in as they um an, an example of that was california in i think 2010 right when the obama administration um was you know was was just still getting control of its justice department where the state and the federal the state and the local governments basically threw their hands up and said, we can't do anything. And so the federal government came in and didn't necessarily use prosecutions, but used a civil asset forfeiture um, and also intimidating landlords um, to shut down a lot of unregistered dispensaries across the state. So speaking of assets, there's also an argument being made that the nothing will ever turn back what's happened in the states, not just the medical programs, but the recreational programs, because they are such big economic boom to the states where they're happening. Is there any thought that the federal government would want to get in instead of just seizing things, would want to get in on, you know, being able to tax it? Are they taxing it? What? How are things working now with dispensaries? They don't pay any federal taxes? Well, all, all the businesses pay should pay federal taxes, whether they're an LLC, so then it passes through to the owner or not. Um, They're technically supposed to pay federal taxes. Um, Whether they do or not is, you know, an open question. But I did hear through some lobbyists who are doing some work for normal as as well as MPP and the Drug Policy Alliance that there is an openness on the part of the IRS to um, eliminate the rule that says um, cannabis businesses can't deduct the cost of the businesses. All they, they can't deduct electricity, power, rent, it, you know, fixing up the location, all they can deduct is the cost of products sold, which is essentially what the seeds or, you know, and maybe the fertilizer or something, that the the IRS may be open to eliminating that in exchange for a federal excise tax. Hmm. And then you get to the question of, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Because that makes it more of a... uh, corporate structure where people are being taxed as opposed to, you know, you're not, unless you're selling them in major bulk, you're not being taxed on the tomatoes that you give to your neighbor or the zucchinis that people keep leaving on the table out there in the kitchen. Right. Well, I think it comes down to the, you know, there's a great meme floating around the internet where it's uh, talking about the war on drugs and someone congratulating drugs on winning the war. You know, you can't, you know, it's, the only way to, I think, to get rid of the underground market is to have a consumer that no longer wants to access it. And so when you're looking, when, I think when we're looking at the future market here, you know, we're talking about people wanting to spend their money on a product as opposed to saying, oh, I can only get it here. But so that's, you know, one thing that's unfortunate about the State Marijuana Legalization Committee, the MLI committee, is that they've really thought that they know better than the voters and have really just delayed, delayed, delayed. And I think there's people like uh, the Senate President Mike Thibodeau who's using this as a moral issue and using his position as a presiding officer to delay this. 
So he's he's just opposed to it, and so he's is that what you're saying? That's that, that, that's that's what I'm you know really seeing as someone who's just opposed to it, just wanting to not get it off the ground with using the um, the argument that the the perfect is going to be the enemy of the good. Hmm. Before we leave the employment thing uh, completely, I wanted to double back to that topic. We've spoken mostly about cases that involved medical marijuana users, and those presumably are the people who are going to be the most sympathetic, the people who, um, the one case that I read about was someone who was wheelchair-bound, who was having spasms, who was not using at work, and uh, he's actually one of the people who, at least as of the time I, the article was written, was not doing well in the courts. Uh, he was, the, the decisions that had happened so far had been against him. If someone like that can't succeed in a lawsuit, it's. do you think that people who are using, quote-unquote, recreationally, who don't have a medical card, are going to have a harder time making it through the court system? Lynn, as an attorney, do you think it would be harder to defend someone, especially with the word recreational in there, um, than it would be somebody who has a medical card? At least in Maine, I certainly think it will be. Um, even separate from the marijuana issue, Maine is an at-will employment state. An employer can fire someone for any reason or no reason. We are not a unionized state. We have minimal union coverage in this state, so there are minimal you know, um, contracts with employees. And employees, separate again from the marijuana thing, are always at risk. And this just adds one more, um, one more arsenal to employers, uh, one more item to the arsenal of employers. Uh, if they want to get rid of someone, um, that, that's just one more way that they can utilize to do that. And, you know, it's important, I th think, to remember, too, that this, uh, the committees, though they've punted it to the Labor Committee when considering the idea of employment discrimination, they still need to hear from people who are, you know, responsible cannabis users. The irresponsible cannabis users, we prefer you just, you know, didn't contact your, uh, your state legislators. We love you, but we are, you know, we have a mission here. The And just explaining to them that, you know, this isn't, this isn't heroin, this isn't any, this isn't alcohol. You know, this is something that's complete, a completely different animal and is completely safe to use and in a lot of ways is a lot healthier as a, of a choice. But that's just that's just a culture change. You know, there are some people who, you know, just because of their age will never believe that it, um, you know, has any purpose in society. Well, I, we, if you heard uh, my guest chuckling a little bit as we were going on air the, uh, this morning or this afternoon, that's because we were passing a piece of paper around, which is something that I had printed out for Paul and Lynn was just seeing it for the first time about a the Paraquat Zombies movie from 1980 that I was telling him about before we went on the air. I mean, that kind of stuff, Reefer Madness, a lot of people grew up with that, although this one in particular, uh, which was under a bunch of different names, including Blood Eater, is kind of a campy sort of um, meant to not meant to be taken seriously movie. I think we may have... A, no, we don't. Okay. Looked like the phone was ringing. If you want to join us again, this is Maine Currents. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today are Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier, and we are talking about uh, what your rights may or may not be in the workplace in terms of uh, testing positive for marijuana, whether you have a medical card or not. We're also going to be talking more about some of the other aspects, some of the other complications that may uh, have you wind up in court and what's happening with the attempts to implement the law here in Maine. 
Another thing that I've heard quite a bit, I don't know if this is still legal or not, uh, is that at the veterans' hospitals, at the VA hospitals, because they're federal hospitals, that veterans are not allowed to use medical marijuana. They can't bring it into the hospital. And that if someone acknowledges that they have a medical marijuana card, this back before is recreationally legal, that they were also, there were policies in place that they couldn't be prescribed other painkillers. So somebody could come in with like a combat injury, and if they had a medical marijuana card, they might be prescribed different strengths of medication that weren't adequate just based on that. You're nodding. Paul, you've heard this? Yeah, you know, I've heard of a lot of issues with the, um, the Veterans Administration and just the idea that TOGUS, which has had its own problems, and they, there are a lot of great people that work there too, Just there's they're just hard asses who just want to say that this is a Schedule One drug and we'll enforce it accordingly. And, and again, it's just it's that mentality that this is a dangerous substance, this is a dangerous plant. And on, unfortunately, I think the 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 command structure at the VA Togus police really believes that and at the end of the day they're the ones who enforce it. Yeah, that's exactly what I've heard too. I have a number of clients who are caregivers and they specialize in veterans, particularly veterans with PTSD, and this is what they hear from their clients. And is there solid medical evidence that it helps with PTSD? I think there's been medical research into pain and certain other medical conditions. PTSD was one of the last things that was added as a qualifying condition for medical marijuana card. Is there is there actual evidence that they should be able to just show to their doctors and say, look, this is something that's a legitimate treatment? So the the, the, the latest research that I've that I've seen is actually coming out of Israel, and um, so there's a lot of Israelis with PTSD, and that they're using um, cannabis therapeutically to deal with the symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder, and so it's um you know that that's the re- that's the only really research that I've seen. Of course, that there is other um, American research and I believe some British research that says that it's actually detrimental because of I believe they're claiming that it can cause schizophrenia, so it can aggravate. Um, PTSD. But again, you know, f- anecdotally from talking to people, um, I've never heard of, of a cannabis really inducing a, a PTSD or something negative along those lines. All right, let's pause there and take a call from Frank from Lemoyne. Frank called 469 0500 or 1 800, excuse me, 1 866 If you'd like to join the conversation, go ahead, Frank. I'm just riding through Hall's Cove where I had a grocery store and gas station. 1979 and was arrested there by the FBI for being a fugitive for 10 years from a marijuana smuggling conviction. Marijuana, why does it just go away, the conversation about marijuana? I'd already ask Lynn, Lynn, is it too late for me to sue the government for being ahead of the curve? But anyways, I'm just being kind of facetious. And the marijuana thing is there's so many issues in the world that are so important, or in Maine, or in Ellsworth, than marijuana, it's just kind of absurd, really. Just and I just had a friend today who had smoked marijuana thirty years. He said, "Where can I get some seeds?" I said, "Hey, man, it's clones, not seeds." <laughs> and, and I was just—I stopped to see him on the way into town. It was just a riot, you know. I said, "Ask your kids; they'll probably know." But anyways, the beat goes on. Then there, Amy and Lynn. I don't know, Paul. All right, bye bye. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Frank. Frank. Well, again, you know, that's, I mean, I think when we're talking about pioneers earlier, though, is that Maine has a strong tradition of 
these people who are entrepreneurs. You know, if, if, if cannabis didn't make you money and it was illegal and there was the penalties, why would you be taking the risk to sell it? And so, you know, if we're talking about actually like, you know, the evolution of this market in this industry is that Maine's been pretty lax when it comes to cannabis in general. And it's almost in some ways, you know, I guess, I guess in my own heterosexual white male perspective is it's in some ways similar to um, gay rights, LGBTQ, um, transgender people's rights is that where it used to be kind of like, you know, oh, just just don't talk about it. Everybody knows, you know, but just don't talk about it. But now that it's actually getting out there, there's this pushback from, you know, I think kind of the more socially conservative right culture and in some ways the business left of saying like, oh, no, like it used to be okay before it was legal. We all knew that Paul, that, 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 that Paul the landscaper smoked smoked cannabis and he could come in and smoke cannabis. But now that it's legal, we want to take this policy that no one can smoke cannabis. Um, and I think that's how it can relate to the employment issue now. Is it's, it, Now that people can be um, open about their cannabis use and, and the stigmas in some ways decreasing, the pendulum is swinging the other way with people who um, – are in the kind of the socially conservative right is that they're looking for an issue to grasp at. They realize that they've lost the battle against like the LGBTQ, you know, fight. That question's pretty much been settled. So they have to grasp onto another issue. And because cannabis, legal cannabis especially, is really out there at the forefront, I think it's just low-hanging fruit for them to pick. And I think, though, there are some tiny exceptions to that in the more conservative community. Um, I know a few religious people who are... Like, well, we wouldn't have marijuana plants if Jesus didn't put them there. And they never shut up, so they may, you know, convince other people. There are also, um, and I've always thought that one of the markets, um, the potential markets for legalized recreational cannabis in the state are middle-aged and older folks, particularly women, who just didn't, want to break the law, didn't want to deal with a dealer, and so on, in the black market. And there's a lot of interest among them. And they are ladies who have, like, book clubs and these sorts of things. I mean, I think that the normalization um, of cannabis, there is a downside, um, but it, particularly in terms of the traditional marijuana culture and the funkiness of it and the fun and the music and so on. But the upside, I think, is that there are going to be new um, supporters out there. Well, in the meantime, let me just, uh, I'll let you jump back in here, Paul, but uh, as we're moving into widening the discussion, again, before we completely leave the employment and the legal issues piece of it, if someone does find themselves becoming one of these test cases, they uh, get refused a job and they want to pursue that, or uh, if they are fired from a job because of drug testing, and, and just to reiterate, companies that take federal funding or are federal have federal contracts, they don't have any choice. That's They're dealing with federal law. But for some of these other companies that people are going after saying, you know, they didn't have to do this. It's not like I'm driving a truck or, or flying a plane. If somebody uh, wants to deal with this, the first test case in Maine, the woman was represented by the ACLU. Presumably the ACLU is not going to represent everyone. So first they're looking at uh, legal issues. Are there good sources for information? Are there people who are supporting and helping people through the court system as they go through this? N not, not without getting paid. You know, that's that's well, the unfortunate. Right. That's that's the unfortunate. Um, you know, part right now. I, I mean, but in I, terms of self-education, where's a good place to go and learn as much about it as you can on your own? Oh, and um, it's I, there's, there's there's a really because this is so new. 
I mean, I can't think of a resource where people can go to try to help themselves convince, work harder to convince your employer that potheads work hard. Okay, but say seeing that that doesn't happen and you get fired anyway, if you're going to have to go through this, you're going to be going through a pretty lengthy court battle, it looks like. Are there, uh, does Normal have resources up on their website? Are there other places where people can go well, and find out what Normal, their rights are? Normal has a list of the cannabis attorneys in Maine, um, but possibly with the exception of cannabis law attorneys in California, most there aren't that many attorneys in the whole country that not that they're not smart and not that they don't know the law the fact of the matter is the law isn't clear and when the law is not clear what we we rely on are is case law previous cases and in maine we have no real previous cases so people really are being trailblazers if they decide they're going to go Definitely. that route. So it needs to be somebody with deep pockets who has the uh, wherewithal to actually keep pursuing that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, until the court's decided, it's not decided no matter what the statute says. But again, people, you know, if they want to get active and try to get ahead of this, I think it's important to contact their legislators and make sure that, you know, you can't be discriminated against because, for using cannabis. You know, you can't you can't be discriminated against for using um, you know a lot of other legal substances um, that are used recreationally. Okay, again, if you want to join us on Main Currents, we've got about 15, 20 minutes left to the program. If you have a question or a comment, uh, give us a call here, 469-0500. Again, 469-0500 locally, or you can call toll-free 1-866-625-9378. It's Main Currents. I'm Amy Brown here with Lynn Williams and Paul McCarrier. So one of the, the big factors in all of this is the testing. Why has somebody not invented something that can tell if you've recently used cannabis because if that was invented somebody would make a bajillion dollars and a lot of this would go right out the door because the problem right now is if people use especially if they've used a lot or used on a regular basis they could be tested you know three days maybe week weeks later and still test positive and get fired by an employer even though they hadn't used you know since they were on vacation a month ago so i mean there is technology out there that's being tested, but it doesn't determine impairment. And I feel like, you know, as an employer, impairment is the key. You know, if, if you're going to prohibit, you know, people from having any sort of substance or being, you know, impaired in any sort of way before coming onto the job, you know, that means that you had too many drinks the night before and you come in, and you're, you know, and you're still a little hungover, you shouldn't work. That means that if you don't get enough sleep the night before because you're taking care of your newborn, then I'm sorry, you can't come in, you know, it was impairment from uh Lack of sleep can be even more dangerous than impairment from alcohol if you're operating heavy machinery. But there are tests that are um, – the latest one that I've been following is a saliva test that determines if you've smoked cannabis within the last three hours. But then that brings up the point of edibles, edibles and, then, and, and vaping and tinctures and topicals, you know, even though most you know, to- topicals really don't have – get you impaired at all necessarily. But it, 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 it won't show if you've used in the last – X amount of time, and that's that's you know really what I've you know what I've seen because most of this has been relating to operating a motor vehicle, and even the main state police have come out and said that they don't support there being a blood test um, to determine impairment. They think that the current laws on the books to determine impairment give them enough tools to be able to deal with that if they think someone's had too much cannabis and is operating a vehicle. Right, right. And it, as I was reading over the Department of Labor proposed new regulations that were now 
kick to the this is within the state this is within the legislative committees um there was a couple of sentences about incorporate for a company to incorporate within its um testing plan or its current cannabis plan um the idea of impairment and identifying impairment almost as a probable cause which is a fairly high level uh, to determine in order to test a person. So they sent these recommendations from the MLI committee to the Labor Committee to consider? Yeah, the Department of Labor, Julie Rabinowitz, appear, or it was Julie or someone else maybe, appeared before the MLI, and the MLI determined that it's really the purview of the Labor Committee, Labor and Employment, whatever that committee is called. Yeah, LCRED, yeah, Labor yeah. Committee. Yeah, the legislative committee for that. Yeah. So they're all on recess until January, right? So is the MLI still meeting? They seem to be meeting for longer than the other committees were, but it doesn't look like they're meeting it they're, anymore. They're, they're going to be having a public hearing on September 26 concerning this, the, the omnibus bill that some of the committee members support. So uh, I encourage everyone to take the time, if they can right now, to plan to come to Augusta on a and what is September that? 26. So that's going to be the public hearing to look at any sort of reforms that may be made to the law um, from the committee's work. This has been um, – this is going to kind of be the one massive titanic um, goliath of legislation that um, is going to propose to adjust the – law that was passed by the citizens. And what are some of the good points and some of the bad points of what they've done so far and will be proposing? I mean, I think I think some of the greatest point, um, some of the good points is how they adjusted the cultivation level and they added more tiers and they removed the cap. And so that's something because of our concern about the coal memo, we specifically put that in there. But now because that the state committee has decided to remove it, we think that's great because more competition is better for the consumer. So that uh, explain to somebody who isn't in the inside on that what that means. That means people will be able to grow more without having to, to – uh there, there's still going to be a uh, there's still going to be a cap on the largest size of cultivation to prevent this kind of like you know large backyard farms from coming in, but what it will allow is for more people to be able to um, get their state license and to ensure that um, there isn't they're not going to be denied at the state level from having a cannabis business. Okay, Lynn, you're nodding in agreement. That's yes, one of the things you I think is positive about it. Yeah. And I also like the idea of the lowest tier, which is the specialty cultivator. Because what that is, that's a small grower, 30 plants or 500 square feet, and it will allow a um, caregiver to move almost seamlessly into that. That caregiver already knows their budget. They know how to do it. They've been doing 30 plants. And and they can always move up to a higher tier in the future, but it'll give them a... um, you know, financial, financially doable way of moving into retail cultivation. It was supposed to be February that people were going to be able to uh, have retail sales and presumably go to the, everybody could go to the dispensaries at that point. And recent news has been that that's being delayed. What's going on with that? When are people going to be able to walk into a boutique if they don't want to go to a caregiver? And well, actually, right now, people can't go to a caregiver unless they're a medical patient still, right? Correct. So, so at, the, at this point, that's, you know, that's up in the air. That's one of those things where it depends on how fast this, um, the legislature is going to work and also depends on um, how much time and effort the executive branch is going to put in to implement this. Uh, unfortunately, it's become just another political card for a lot of people in Augusta to, to consider to play. They don't, they're not necessarily interested in seeing this market get off the ground and supporting a tax and regulated 
cannabis system in Maine that supports Mainers. They're more interested in using this as a negotiating chip. Well, the fact that this bill, this referendum, has gotten as far as it has, while this legislature just basically looked at the list of the other things the voters approved and said, no, nah, we don't like this one, no, nah, we don't like that one, and threw them out completely, says that it has some level of support that a lot of other things didn't. Ranked choice voting is gone, the tax on the rich to support education, you know, all of these things that people just decided the voters didn't know what they were talking about. This seems like it must have more support if it's made it this far. I I have to say I've been I have some issues with the MLI the committee, um, but I've been pretty impressed and surprised at a number of things. One is if I didn't know some of those people, and I know probably two thirds of them, where they stand politically and their history and so on. If I didn't know them from that, I would I would not really be able to pinpoint um, most of them. Um, in terms of their other work, their political activities, their political viewpoints. So they're trying to stay objective. And I think they, I think they are. Um, you know, there's 17 people. They have chairs, neither of whom are shrinking violets. And um, but I think on certain levels, the removal of the cap, I have to say, shocked me. The removal of the cap shocked me. And the three members, mostly, who were pushing that are on both ends and the middle of the political spectrum. And so I'm, and I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think part of the reason that this has gotten this far, as opposed to the other measures that have been basically thrown into the dustpan, um, is because a committee was appointed to take it on. You know, I think that's also because there's been a lot of engagement and lobbying to make sure that this law stays as intact as possible. I know that Legalize Maine has put a lot of work into this, and there's other people who've put work in to make sure that this law wouldn't be repealed or was, wouldn't be, you know, removed off the books as some people wish it would be. You know, I know that there's a um, state senator from Benton who is strongly opposed to cannabis and wants to try to get um, get this law repealed, and that's very unfortunate. Well, some of the others that were tossed out had some decent lobbyists working for them too, but I wonder if they didn't have as much bipartisan support. Is, is there a sense that there is? some bipartisan, more of bipartisan nature at play in getting this put through in a reasonable way than there have been with some other bills? I feel like they, I feel like a lot of them realize that there's already a market. They're, they're starting to realize there's already a market that's established here. Money. And it's, it's, it's always about money. But that's, I mean, that's the truth of the matter. It's always about money. It will, it will not cost, it will, the amount of money that the state brings in will not be, will overshadow the cost of it, essentially. And that's something that definitely makes some of these people, you know, look at it. They, that w- that's what makes them hungry for it. I, I was hoping that more of them would look at it as an economic stimulus for local businesses, but some are stuck on tax money. Um, but I think as this committee meets more, um, they've learned a lot more about how this is a good business for the state of Maine. I'm going to have you say, before we close up in a little in a few minutes, uh, more about this meeting, remind people about the meeting again that's coming up in September. Our engineer, John Greenman, however, uh, had a question. I think, John, if you want to pop in here for a second, he held up a, a sign with something about industrial hemp, so I wanted to give him a chance to ask that. Yeah, I, I, towards the end of the show, I thought it might be appropriate to bring up the other side of this whole thing. Industrial hemp had a huge existence in this country for years and years and years. You can go along railroad lines and still mm-hmm. find pot growing along railroad lines. It's not any psychoactive pot, but it's industrial hemp pot. And uh, I'm just wondering about the future of industrial hemp in this country and, this, and in Maine. I mean, uh, uh, unfortunately. 
I think indu- I think the future of industrial hemp in the short term in this country is going to be for its cannabidiol, the CBD, and I think that's what people are going to actually mostly cultivate it for and distribute it as because that has a medicinal, you know, has a therapeutic benefit, um, and without being that psychoactive part of it. But again, that's that's again growing, you know, just the female plants and then possibly keeping the males around for breeding. When it comes down to using it for an actual textile, um, or is that for its fiber? You know, unfortunately, unless we get some major, major investment um, in the state when it comes down to processing of it, um, it's it's like a lot of other industries. We're not able to compete with Canada, which already has a subsidized and established industry, or China or Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and that's that's where I just you know really frankly see the uh, the future of um, hemp in the short term. Has anybody ever talked about the possibility of using it as a biomass burnable quantity? Again, that's it's the it's the upfront cost to build the infrastructure that's right. been the that's that's the that's the big that's the big thing that's really slowed it down i think we even have seen it with um a lot of the biomass plants in maine is that they claim to need a subsidy to operate and so you know it it's going to be difficult to find someone or a company to come in and, and spend three million dollars to develop a, a plant to to deal with it either way but um but when it comes down to the the cbd aspect of it that's what you know right now people in the state are growing industrial hemp for hmm. So this meeting's coming up in September. The uh, MLI, the Marijuana Legalization Implementation Committee of the state legislature, who have been charged with putting the details, and this was over 30 pages long, the uh, referendum that was passed, so there are lots of details that they are working out. They are coming to this for public hearing with what they are proposing. Uh, What happens after that? There apparently then will call a special session of the legislature to vote on the bill. Okay, so they'll return before January to that's what do it. that's what has been said. I see Paul shaking Paul's his hand. That's what maybe, has maybe been not, said, so. but well, you know, to, to to recall to have a special session unless the governor calls it, yeah. it requires agreement of all four of the caucuses, and I think we could see a possible issue with trying to call people back in October or November for a session just to deal with cannabis. As, as much as it would be good to be able to get this, you know, up, off the ground, good or bad, you know, being able to get this thing moving and get this thing, you know, operating, it, you're going to have to try to get, you know, this House Republican caucus. Um, to agree to to move forward with this. We have just about two minutes left, but just very briefly, does this all end up on the governor's desk and can he send everybody back to square one? So the the executive branch has the has the responsibility and the constitutional duty to implement the law as written. But I'm not going to say what the executive, chief executive of the state will or will not do. Because some of this is rules that he doesn't necessarily sign off on, right? And then some of it's new legislation. So it's it's not – it's it, – the rules the rules are, will have to be drafted by the departments and be reviewed by the legislature, but if the departments never draft the rules, there's nothing for the legislature to review. And the departments, if they don't issue the licenses, I believe you'd have to take them to court to coerce them to issue licenses. And then after they review it, that those the rules will go to the governor too, or no? No, the okay. rules will go to the legislative and then the, the legislature, and then, and they then they'll be on their own. the rules. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well. I'm sure that just left a lot of other questions in people's dun, dun, minds that didn't mind to like to be continued, right? Uh, but we're out of time. So again, best places for people to go to get more information to f- uh, follow up on this public. So they can go to legalizemain.net and go to our legalizemain Facebook page. Okay, and uh, that was Paul McCarrier, Lynn Williams. 
Yeah, the same information will be there. Or if people want to submit um, written testimony for the public hearing on the 26th, they can email me and I'll give them the clerk's email address. My email address is lwilliamslaw at earthlink.net. Okay, and that public comment period will probably go on for a little while after the public hearing? No, it no. will, just, it oh, will most likely just be day of, and, 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 which some committee members have expressed concerns that one day of public hearings, it will not be enough. And where is this going to be held in Augusta? In, in Augusta at the uh, State Capitol. It's at the State House in their committee room? Yes. So this isn't something that they're going to go to, like, the Civic Center for or anything? It seems like it might draw a crowd. Most, most likely not. All right. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. It was a really informative hour. And we thank did, you. Uh, like so many times, just touch on the surface of things here. But I appreciate you both coming in. And that's really all we have time for today. Um, Again, my guests today have been Lynn Williams. She's an attorney, and Paul McCarrier. Both have been working on legalization issues here in Maine for the past several years. And Lynn works with the legal panel of Normal as well. Um, that's Normal without the A. dot O R G. Uh, John Greenman is our engineer today. We thank him as well. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. You can reach us at news at weru.org, and our programs are archived by the end of each week at weru.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, and that's followed by Jazz Alchemy here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Merrill's Bookshop, 134 Water Street in downtown Hollowell, selling fine used and rare books since 1991, usually open Tuesday through Saturday, hours always available at 623-2055. You're listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Here's a quick look at the National Weather Service forecast for the greater Bangor, Midco, 